0: Well, on this day in many parts of the world, Christians from various church and Christian traditions are celebrating and remembering, indeed, what we call Palm Sunday. And it recalls that day Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem for his final week of earthly ministry leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday that we will celebrate next Lord's Day. Uh, This whole week we call Passion Week. Uh, Passion coming from the Latin word passio, meaning enduring or suffering, pointing to the suffering of Jesus Christ. This is Passion Week. Um, All four Gospels give attention to this event, Palm Sunday. But as we look at John's account in John chapter 12, we're going to see that John intends very much to communicate a narrative and story that is full and in in many ways, dripping with irony. Because while many people were expecting a Messiah and a king who would take his rightful throne, he would exercise his dominion over the Romans, uh, liberating his people from oppression, reestablishing them, we know that Jesus is not first headed to a throne. This king, this Messiah, is headed to Across, horrific suffering. Palm Sunday, then, is an event that very much challenges the expectations of God's people about who this king is. What should we expect from this king? What should we expect from his kingship and his kingdom? What should we expect from him in our own lives, in the life of the church, in the life of the nation, in the life of, of this, his world? So as you're turning to John 12, it begins in verse 12. This notion of a grand and triumphal entry is something we read of in stories. It's something that we see in in films. I remember as a a younger person with two older brothers, uh, you end up listening to the music they like to listen to. You end up watching the films that they like to watch. Well, my oldest brother was into Western films, not the old, old Western films like John Wayne or Gary Cooper, sorry if I'm dating uh, people here. Uh, just the old Western films by Clint Eastwood in particular. Films like Pale Rider, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, Hang 'em High, you know, good, wholesome movies for kids. Uh, <laughs> But the the storyline was always basically the same. There was a a general setup and context, introduction to characters. Then there would be a development of some kind of conflict or struggle. And then, in the end, the protagonist, the hero, would ride into town for his final entry to do justice, to get vindication, to put things right again. You you knew how it was going to end. You knew for sure it was never going to end with the hero being defeated. Or humiliated. That's what makes the gospel so counterintuitive, countercultural. It's precisely through the humiliation of Christ, His lowliness, His humility, that the good news of the gospel is revealed to us. So we turn our attention to John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. Listen now to God's word. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him. They cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Look, the world has gone after him. Distinct uh, in John's uh, gospel from the other gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all organize their gospels around a similar structure, primarily focusing on Jesus' ministry, his Galilean ministry, particularly right around the Sea of Galilee, then his move toward Jerusalem, and then his final week, Passion Week. John's structure in his gospel is different. John organized his gospel around several journeys that Jesus took to Jerusalem. And in each journey, something dramatic and powerful happens. So in chapter 2, we read of the first journey Jesus takes to Jerusalem. He goes into the city and into the temple. He drives out the money changers and he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days, referring, the text says, to his own body. We see another journey he takes, a second one in chapter 5. He returns to the city and there he heals the man, the invalid of 38 years uh, by the pool of Bethesda. He takes a third journey in chapter 10, where we're told the Jews were pressing Jesus. They were asking him, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I have told you, but you do not believe. My sheep hear my voice. They listen to me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. I and the Father are one. So as you come to this 12th chapter and this fourth and final journey to Jerusalem, there's There's a heightened sense of suspense, and the drama is centering around the nature of the Messiah. What kind of king is he? What is his kingdom like? What can we expect? And you can feel the drama just by the description of the opening verse in our text, where we're told a large crowd had come to the feast. This is the feast of Passover, we know. They came out to meet him, and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's peculiar about this episode is something that J.C. Ryle, the bishop, pointed out. He says, we have nothing like it in the New Testament. Because Jesus' normal behavior and actions was not to seek popular attention. He was often, as you read through the Gospels, withdrawing from the crowds and from public notice. Withdrawing to the wilderness. uh, Resisting those who would seek to make him king by force often directing those whom he healed not to tell anyone. But here we have something completely different. Jesus is not only coming into the city on the busiest, fullest week of the entire year. It's Passover week. It's the most important, most popular memorial among Israel, a time when Uh, The historian Josephus tells us that the city would swell to perhaps the size of 2.7 million people. This is a time when diverse peoples and all the tribes were streaming into the city to celebrate atonement for sin through the blood sacrifice of a lamb. And and Ryle says, knowing all this, our Lord purposely drew attention to himself. The eyes are on him. He's drawing attention to himself. He knows this. And who Jesus is and what he's going to do, it's important to note, is a public matter. It's not a private matter. It's something public for people to see and to know. And that's to be true still today. Even the Pharisees say in verse 19, the world's gone after him. Think about this. How many times in the Gospels are we told that the Pharisees sought to kill him? Luke 4, verse 30. They take Jesus, it says, to the brow of a hill to throw him down the cliff. And then the text says, quote, But passing through their midst, he went away. How? John 8, verse 59. Angry Jews are seeking to stone him. And it says, going through the midst of him, he passed by. So throughout his ministry, our Lord demonstrated this uh, a kind of mysteriously hidden power, walking right through the midst of those who would seek to destroy him. But now on Palm Sunday, we see his very intentional, very public, very voluntary act to move toward the cross, willingly, openly to yield to this path of suffering. What an important time for us, this Passion Week, to reflect on the deliberate, the pursuing love of God after his people. Remember what Paul said in the fifth chapter of Romans, when he said, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even in our rebellious hearts, God in Christ pursued, he came after his elect, after his people. Does this deliberate pursuing love still stir your heart? Does it still capture your heart? Just yesterday morning, while uh, finishing up some uh, study at a Dunkin' Donuts, I had my uh, Bible open and a woman walked by and she saw me and she saw my Bible open and she said, another Jesus lover. I turned slowly because I wasn't sure if she was for me or against me in, in the way that she said it. But it turned out she meant it in the best possible way. Within minutes, we were talking about Christian faith and ministry, and then a couple minutes later, she, along with her two friends, sisters in Christ, uh, were were praying for me, not normally what you see at a Dunkin' Donuts, uh, but I wasn't going to turn down uh, prayer. But as they were praying, one of them began to pray through the 23rd Psalm, And, and I was just taken again by that last verse in the 23rd Psalm, surely Goodness and steadfast love will follow me, will, will come after me, will pursue me. This is, this is the God that we worship, this God who goes after his people, who pursues his people with his steadfast love, even a dying love. Palm Sunday reminds us of Christ's intentional and dying love for his people. You know, we cherish those doctrines of election and, and predestination, rightly so. God chose us, Paul says in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. But here, on this day and this week, we remember the cost of that election. Right? The cost of the Son of God for us. Well, as our Lord enters into the city of Jerusalem, the expectations of people come to the surface. And this is very much at the heart of, of the narrative. So we're told in verse 17 the very reason the people came to be around Jesus. It says the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Now we're not told the personal motivations of of the people, but it would be of no surprise if it was because they wanted something from him, rather than who he is in himself. This is the one who who we've heard raises people from the dead. Lazarus, in the previous chapter, John 11, the one who heals diseases, the one who calms storms. What might he do for me? What might he do for us? In fact, the image of the palm branches... The crying out Hosanna, meaning save us, O Lord, and, and their identification as of Jesus as King of Israel, it's the commentators, many of them, say this all is pointing to uh, this idea of, of a nationalism, of a national pride that the people had. A king who would free them from the Roman yoke and that of injustice, oppression. The commentator Frederick Bruner says this, When the temple was rededicated during the Maccabean era in the intertestamental time, palms were used in the celebration. During both major wars with Rome, reliefs of palms were stamped on the coins minted by the rebels. Thus, this act of celebration with palms is by no means neutral. The palm symbolizes Israel's national hope's now focused on Jesus. It's the people's expectations of this Messiah and King that come to the forefront. Some are drawn to Jesus, perhaps, expecting a miraculous work, such as they saw in Lazarus. Others expecting a Messiah who's going to liberate them politically, socially, nationally. It's worth remembering Jesus went to great lengths to teach about the nature of his kingdom in his ministry, particularly in the parables. Most of the parables center on the kingdom of God. And yet still, after his death, after his resurrection, what what do the disciples ask the Lord in the first chapter of Acts? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? The disciples are having to learn about the nature of this king and his kingdom. They were likely expecting a restoration through a military and political kingdom that's going to drive out the Roman armies. It's going to restore a kind of national sovereignty to Israel. Their expectation, their understanding of this king, his kingdom, were in some ways well off. And so they needed a corrective, true understanding And whether it's the large crowd gathered around him or his own 12 disciples or any one of us, there's a principle often at work, I think, in our hearts. And it's the temptation to use Christ or his kingdom and his gospel for some other purpose. It's the desire to receive something from him, perhaps healing, a rescue from a difficult relationship, financial hardship, help for a son or daughter, They're all legitimate concerns, all legitimate petitions. Yet the only way those things don't become masters themselves is that we are seeking first, desiring first, the Lord Himself above the things that He may give or the expectations we have of the way He would work in our own lives, in society, in the life of the church. Pastor Joseph Ryan wrote these words, The controlling issue in many Christians' lives is a personal agenda. They want Jesus to fit into their plans, hopes, ambitions. In the end, there's only two choices. Either we use Jesus for our ends, or Jesus uses us for his ends. Remember how Jesus responded to the disciples in Acts 1 when they asked him, Is now the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He says... It's not for you to know the times and seasons, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What insight into the nature of this this kingdom and its expansion to the nations that Jesus is giving to his disciples? Well, in the story, there's actually a corrective that the Lord provides about His messianic kingdom. And the corrective is an animal. It's the young donkey. It's only in John's gospel that Jesus obtains the donkey in verse 14 after mention is made about the crowds and the palm branches and the cheering. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, Jesus, in all three of those, gives direction, remember, to the disciples about how to obtain the animal. And then Jesus rides into the city, into the crowd, and they're cheering. But John here is different. He's emphasizing the young donkey after giving attention to the crowd. It's serving as a kind of corrective to the people. It's destabilizing their expectations about what this king is about. D.A. Carson uh, said, to report the ride on the donkey immediately after the acclamation of the crowd has the effect of dampening down nationalistic expectations. In other words, if there was ever an opportune time for Jesus to take advantage of the national or the political moment, he would have ridden in on a powerful flashing white steed, a war horse, an animal that would represent might and power, authority. Instead, he's very deliberate, certainly fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, but here he comes and he sits upon a beast of burden. This is an animal that communicates peace. This is an animal that's accustomed to carrying weight. It's a work animal. It's used to carrying burdens. So the very choice of animal upon which Jesus sits, the very way in which he enters the city, it's revealing his very nature as a king and what his kingdom is about. This is a king who is humble. This is a king whose salvation goes well beyond the bounds of a single nation. Uh, This is a king whose liberation goes way deeper than what any human constitution or law could ever accomplish. Because this king is coming to bear upon himself the greatest burden that people will ever bear. Certainly in this life, the burden of sin, its deep effects. And what comes with it? The burden of guilt, the burden of shame burden of separation from god the burden of suffering so many are the burdens that we have in our lives only christ can lift so while the crowds are gathering around the lord they're pursuing him the pharisees they're even saying verse 19 you see you're gaining nothing the world's gone after him the irony is that while many are seeking him perhaps for their own purposes with their own expectations, it's the Lord Jesus who is in pursuit, carrying out the will of His Father. Love for the church, for His people, by way of the cross. Perhaps you've heard this uh, song by Third Day. It's a number of years old about Christ the King. Who is this king of glory that pursues me with his love and haunts me with each hearing of his softly spoken words? My conscience, a reminder of forgiveness that I need. Who is this king of glory who offers it to me? Who is this king of glory with strength and majesty, wisdom beyond measure, the gracious king of kings, the Lord of earth and heaven, the creator of all things? Who is this king of glory? He's everything to me. It's tempting, I think, to have the thought, I know, I know. Jesus brought a spiritual kingdom. And yes, while it is a kingdom that brings salvation, the kingdoms and the nations of the world, with their leaders and prime ministers and presidents, seem much more influential, we might think even more relevant in the world. Don't they seem to be the ones with the real teeth? But the reality is that Christ's kingdom is far more real and far more enduring than any earthly kingdom. Remember, it's a kingdom that is present. It is not of this world, which means there is no present national kingdom that can own it. It comes from outside the world. It's an everlasting kingdom, but it's present as Jesus preached and taught. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is the kingdom that is to serve as the conscience of all earthly kingdoms. It's the kingdom that serves as the rule of righteousness and justice and truth. It's the only kingdom and king that redeems and transforms the hearts and loves of its citizens. This is the kingdom of which we are first and foremost citizens. This is the kingdom that is to serve as the center of our devotional life. Jesus taught us to pray as we prayed earlier. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's here, but it's also continuing to come. And it's the kingdom that dispels fear and anxiety. There in that sixth chapter in the Sermon on the Mount of of, of Matthew, he says, don't worry, and goes on about the anxieties uh, that we may experience. But then at the end, he says, instead, seek first the kingdom of God. It's a remedy for dispelling our fears and anxieties. And this is the only kingdom whose king offers his life as a ransom for his people. That's the great irony. Jesus, right, the triumph of the story is actually not in the grand entry. It's in the grand exit where Jesus is headed. He comes in, hailed as king, but he's going to exit the passion Week, as the Lamb of God who takes away uh, the sin of His people. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we praise You as our, our true and everlasting King. What, what joy it, it brings our hearts. Comfort it brings our hearts. Encouragement that you have made known this kingdom to us, that you have called us into this kingdom and into a life of joy and peace, a life with uh, even in union with this King. Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow us in insight and understanding of, of who your Son is as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Use us, Lord, as instruments in your hands to be about, more than anything else, this your kingdom, that we would be a shining light in a dark world, that people would have eyes open to who they are and to your marvelous grace in Christ. Give us strength to both yield, uh, humility to yield to this King, but also courage and strength to make known the glory and the wonder. And grace of this King. Do that work, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.